Hey, and welcome to the Holy Saviour podcast. Hope you're having a great week. We continue our series looking at the book of Ephesians this week, and we're looking at Ephesians 1 verses 15 through to Ephesians 2 verse 10. Hopefully you'll find the sermon interesting. Uh, It is a bit tricky at points as we have to understand and get to grips with just how uh, much we are in need of a saviour. As ever, if you have any questions, do get in touch, but settle down, grab a cuppa and enjoy listening. Uh, So we're in a preaching series at the moment where we're looking at uh, the book of Ephesians and we're going through a little bit at a time to try and explore what it might mean to us. Uh, It was Paul's letter to the Ephesian church um, and it was an encouragement by Paul to the church to essentially say uh, that God is calling them to a different standard of behaviour. To not follow the example of the um, of Rome, uh, the the expectation that they would be Roman citizens who would worship Caesar and further the empire and behave like everyone else. Rather, they're called to be ambassadors for Christ, because uh, as we explored sort of two weeks ago, we have been chosen, we've been adopted and transformed by Jesus and filled by the Holy Spirit, which is just a foretaste of all that is to come. Uh, And so in the first chapter, um, it continues with a reminder that Paul is cheering on the believers and praying for them, that they may realise the extent of the hope they are called to have and the power that lives in each and every one of them. If you remember nothing else from today, hold on to this. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, lives in you. That's what Paul is trying to remind them of. Has anyone seen The Lion King, stage version or uh, the film? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? One of my favourite scenes, and it's the bit that makes me cry every time, uh, is this one, He Lives in You, when Rafiki says, look, you need to look into the water uh, and remind yourself, Simba, of who you are. And uh, then he sees his father's reflection and his father speaks to him. It's beautiful. He lives in you. But you see, it isn't some Disney concept that we're thinking about today. This is the biblical truth that we're being encouraged to grasp hold of and remember. Because when we do, we will see mighty things happen. It's mind-blowing, really, that to think that the God who... Um, made each one of us, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, broke the chains of sin and death, lives in you and lives in me. Why don't we turn to the people next to us and just simply say, he lives in you. Remind them. Go on, be bold. I know it's not very British. Talk to one another. Okay, it was only meant to be those words, not too many more. Four words. He lives in you. Fabulous. So that's the end of chapter one. I want to really focus on chapter two, verses one to ten, because it's regarded by many as being the single most important passage in the Bible. 
and it helps it, as, as we understand it, perhaps figure out whether we fully understand what the gospel is. And in this passage, Paul introduces a word that a lot of Christians use as shorthand to sort of summarise their relationship with Jesus. It's often a word that confuses people who don't believe, uh, sometimes uh, a source of ridicule. Uh, and sometimes it's a word that, if I'm honest, sometimes makes me cringe a little bit. But it's this word, saved. That word you sometimes hear in those awkward tracts, are you saved? And you maybe even get like a big hand reaching out to drag you out of the water. But hopefully, as we read this passage and understand it, we might realise that it's a word uh, that isn't meant to make us cringe. Because actually it encapsulates for us fully the helpless state Jesus has had to rescue us from. It's uh, where Paul begins his gospel message is to remember just the very depths from which we have been rescued. See, in Ephesians 2, Paul uh, busts two very ingrained myths that our culture believes about evil. The first is that we think the main problem is other people. It's not us. We're not the problem. It's other people. We can look around the world, we can see the news, and we can feel like, yes, okay, yeah, evil exists. It's in the world, but it's not me. Others are the primary problem. You know, we put locks on our doors, uh, we put filters on the internet, we can stop those things coming into our house, that evil coming in. Or we think it's people unlike us who are the main problem. Those who vote differently, dress differently, those who live their lives from a different perspective to what we would call normal. It's easy, isn't it, to find ourselves in an echo chamber far too easily where we just surround ourselves with people who look and dress and think and holiday and vote and eat and all that stuff the same as us. It's often one of the biggest challenges, I think, when trying to find a reliable news source to read. Because so often we find that our newsfeed is filled by those things that all just seem to, we seem to agree with far too easily. We don't necessarily hear about the other challenging things. And the second myth is we believe uh, with certainty, uh, and this is certainly something that the society wants us to remember, is that we're not really that bad, are we? We're basically good people who get confused and lose our way. Or we're just weak. The famous psychologist Carl Rogers expressed the predominant thinking that has shaped our culture's view of man throughout the last century. He said that we're basically good and our main problem is that we've lost touch with our inner goodness and oppressive or distorting societal structures have obscured our goodness. He never does quite mention where perhaps those societal structures come from. And who invented them? But we reject the idea of needing to be saved because we think we're not the problem, others are, and that we really aren't that bad. But you see, Paul straight away in the first verse blows that to pieces. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Notice that word, you. 
You were dead in transgression and sin. Not other people, but you. There's only one category of people, sinner. And sin is a fatal disease that exists in the heart of every person. And that's the second word that challenges how our culture thinks of itself. Dead. Our problem is not that we're good people who occasionally lose our way and do bad things, but that we are spiritually dead. Many people think of sin as bad actions that we do, like stealing or lying and that kind of thing. But the word dead shows us that sin is not so much an action as it is a condition. Our bad actions are symptoms of our dead condition. Just like if we have the flu, you don't have the flu because you sneeze, you cough and you've got a fever. Rather, you, have, uh, you cough and you sneeze and you have a fever because you've got the flu. We're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. That's because, as Paul says, we are all spiritually dead. And you know, it's a bit of a, a gory picture, but say there was a battlefield and there were 20 dead bodies in front of us, some may look worse than others. Some may be severely damaged or barely recognisable. Others may show little to no signs of damage. Some may be advanced in decay. Others may not be. But it doesn't matter how they look. The important detail is they are all dead. New research shows that 100% of people who die, 100% are dead. They aren't partially dead or sort of dead or theoretically dead. They are dead. 100% of dead people are totally, completely and entirely dead. Wow. And because we are dead in our sins, no amount of religious behavioural change can fix us. Behavioural change only affects the outside, but they don't deal with the problems on the inside. We are all spiritually dead. We may smell okay for a while, and we may even learn to cover up the areas of stench in our lives, but we are dead. (coughs) Aren't you pleased you came to church this morning? (laughs) Wonderful. But it gets worse in verses two and three. So as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You were followers of Satan. The core of Satan's rebellion is I will. And according to Isaiah, he said it five times, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And as we've considered many times before, that is the main problem. Perhaps the biggest problem of society is I. See, in the beginning, we were made to praise God bring honour and glory to his name, to walk in close relationship with him. But it all goes wrong because we chose I. The will of God was to be our highest pleasure, 
the thing that held the most sway in every decision we made. But other things rather than God become our master. We were supposed to carry out the will of God. Instead, we carry out the will of our body and mind. Our bodies say, have sex or eat or drink or take it easy or get angry. And we do it. Our minds say, make your own decisions or do things your way. And we obey. This really is a cheery sermon, isn't it? We don't like to think of ourselves in these terms, but the fact is we are slaves to sin and dead. That is the condition we find ourselves in. We may consider that we don't have anything that bad, but the reality is when we look around and see the numerous documentaries about people who have fallen from grace, those who are on a pedestal and have now uh, had their inward character exposed, we can think we aren't all that bad. But I heard this story recently from someone who went to Rwanda. She said, we drove into the mountains to a Tutsi village that had been wiped out during the 1994 genocide. One Rwandan man stood at the very spot where his family and hundreds of people had been slaughtered. Through a translator, he described the horror of what he had experienced that day. I felt sick. Afterwards, we held hands on that spot and prayed. And I'll never forget when our team leader began her prayer. God, forgive me. The wickedness that drove men to commit these crimes is the same sin in my heart. I am no better no closer to salvation, but for your grace. This lady went on to say, I always thought she had, I had a pretty boring testimony, but standing there on the scene of that massacre, I realised I'd been saved from the same depths of depravity as a mass murderer. You see, quite often we like to just jump to the good part, don't we? We want to just jump forward and say, yeah, we don't need to worry about that too much because of Jesus. And we jump to the cure. Has anyone ever had a parachute strapped to them? Yeah, cool. I imagine it's fairly big and uncomfortable when you're sitting down with it on, yeah? And when you're sitting on that plane, you feel rather uncomfortable. But if you knew that plane was going down, You'd not only put up with the inconvenience of having a parachute strapped to your back and sitting awkwardly, but you'd consider it the most valuable thing you had with you and you'd be trying to convince everyone else to put on theirs as well, wouldn't you? Charles Spurgeon says, The reason we think too lightly of the Saviour is we think too lightly of sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment around his neck, will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which he has been forgiven of. That's the problem. We now shift gear to the good bit. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. That one word, but... Yet it's a word that takes this sermon from a place of feeling pretty rubbish, hopefully, to a place of hope. But God, out of his great love for us, out of his mercy, he made us alive. It's all in past tense because Paul is referring to what Jesus already did on the cross. 
He's not talking about some gradual process of religious uh, coming alive where we slowly become good and do what we should. He's talking about something that Jesus did once and for all in the past. On the cross, Jesus became our sin. He died a sinner's death. He was treated by God like he was a follower of Satan. And he bore our sin in our place. He lived the life we were supposed to live. And then he died the death we were condemned to die. Jesus did not merely die for us. He died instead of us. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Sorry, I like that bit there. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Again, it's past tense. We have been placed there. We can't be in a higher place, even if we um, gave a billion pounds or prayed four hours every day or managed to go a whole decade and never sin. We're already in Jesus's seat, the highest place of honour. And when we pray, you know, at the end of our prayers, we often say in the name of Jesus, as if it's a nice little rounding up thing. But the crux of the gospel is the fact that as we say those words, we are praying uh, from his seat, praying based upon all that he has done, not because what we have done. And then finally, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Those four, ver- those four verses rather give us four crucial things to understand about salvation. Firstly, the basis of salvation is grace. By grace, you have been saved. We don't do anything. Have been is passive. We don't do it ourselves. God does it. It's not based on reward or good behaviour. <clears throat> Secondly, the instrument of salvation is faith. Paul says, by grace, we are saved through faith. <clears throat> faith is not simply a religious feeling or becoming more Christian or a rock-solid confidence in Jesus with no doubts. Faith is the hand that lays hold of Jesus. Faith is the belief that Christ has accomplished it all, just like he said he did, and simply resting our hope on that. The result of salvation is good works. It says in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're not saved by good works. But if we're saved, we'll do good works. Because when God, we are saved, we're united to Christ and he begins to infuse our life with his. There's no way to be uh, hit by the force of grace and not be changed, I suggest. You know, if someone for example, was to come up to me and give me the keys to a new car. Amazing, extravagant gift. I would find it hard not to change my behaviour towards that person and be like, oh, I'm super thankful and, and be uh, 
absolutely overflowing with praise and thanksgiving. And it's the same with Jesus. You're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. You're not saved by good works, but if you're saved, you will do good works. And then finally, the confidence of salvation is that what God started, he will finish. It talks about in advance, God has prepared good works for us to do. He hasn't finished with us yet. He will use us. And he has some great stuff planned for us. And there's nothing we can do that will change that. God has started his work and he'll bring it to completion. The victory has been won and the great good news is that we have the opportunity to walk in it and to experience life with Jesus today. And so that's the choice we have. Are we going to grasp hold of all that Jesus offers and gives us? In a few moments, we're going to share communion together. And there's just a few things I wonder as we share communion, as we're reminded of that incredible gift of grace, that we might want to receive some prayer for. Have you said yes to God? If not, today's your chance. Do you hold God's grace too lightly? Perhaps are we in danger of just forgetting sometimes just the magnitude of God's grace? Are we still trying to win God's favour? Do we think that if we just do this, this way or that way, if we just try a little bit harder, God will uh, forgive us? Because that's not the truth. And do we perhaps feel sometimes like our faith doesn't really make a difference? You see, the truth is that God wants to use each and every one of us. So what good works has he got in store for us to do? And so as we share communion in a moment, um, James and Lizzie will be uh, towards the back and uh, they would love to pray for you and with you. You can share with them if you'd like to, uh, anything particularly, or just use that opportunity to have someone stand with you and to pray uh, for, for you. Because we believe prayer works. Because we believe in a God who has won the victory. And that the good news is that he will bring it to completion. We can experience life with God today. If we simply say yes to that gift of grace. I hope you found that helpful. If you've got any questions, would like to find out more or perhaps want to explore faith further, simply get in touch with vicar at holysaviour.church or find us on social media. Take care, have a fantastic week and we'll be back with Ephesians chapter 3 next week.